Welcome to Navigating the Future, One Decision at a Time. I'm your host, Alex DeBrain, and in this series I'll be sharing a chapter per episode of my memoir, Escaping the Amazon, for those that would prefer to listen to it instead of reading it. Hopefully some of the decisions I made through my journey can help some of you navigate the chaos we call life. Subscribe to my podcast, follow me on Twitter at AlexTheBrain1, or subscribe to my mailing list on AlexTheBrain.com to stay up to date as I release each episode. Any comments or feedback is always welcomed and encouraged, so please drop me a mail on info at alexthebrain.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Iron sharpens iron. Respectful of the legion's traditions, honoring your superiors, discipline and comradeship are your strength, courage and loyalty your virtues. It was the perfect season to see Castle Nordry in the territory of Largus. The outlying fringes were spread out and nestled among majestic trees. The setting sun glistened on the Canal de Midi, highlighting the riverbank, which burst with a blend of ancient and modern buildings stacked closely together in layers of centuries past. Several church spires pierced the skyline. How could this pictorial town ever be a house of pain for the next four months? We passed the old Legion Training Centre, tucked inside the city, to the sparsely populated outskirts near the railroad tracks. Eventually the road curved into the entree Cartier Captain Danjou. As we rolled through the wide gate, I saw a large maroon parade square directly in front of us, looking just like the pictures I'd seen with perfect rectangular lines of Legionnaires standing in formation. I missed it up at the thought of now being part of that. We piled out of the bus and were led to our barracks. They were basic but impeccably tidy. Mother would have been so proud, with rows of beds aligned with floor tiles. Cream lockers stood between each bunk. Down the passage was the communal ablution area where we were given five minutes to piss or shit before reconvening. Back down the passage and then turn right down another corridor. Left, and it's the first door on the right. Corporal Basil rattled off in indecipherable French. All 30 of us were then squeezed side by side on small wooden chairs in a tiny lecture room. A pistol Corporal Borden materialised and marched front and centre. He wore long-sleeved camouflage combats with a black patch on his left shoulder adorned with two green stripes. On his head was his brilliant kepi blanc. If God willed it, we might wear that same coveted headdress in a month. Bienvenue à l'instruction, he started in French. You are now in the second phase of becoming a legionnaire. Your asses belong to the legion. Your allegiance is to the legion, and you no longer exist. We don't give a shit about who you were in your past life, nor do we care about what sins you have committed. We are not interested in which military you served or your previous rank. You are all now equally worthless. He pulled out a pair of glasses from his left chest pocket and picked up a clipboard from which he read, switching into the pamphlet propaganda mode. You are no longer rouges, but Enganger volunteers. Tomorrow you will go to the farm where you will spend a month adapting to the Legion lifestyle. There are no modern comforts there. You will master the French Army issue rifle, the NATO-compliant FAMAS F1. We will teach you how to march. You will learn French and how to sing. We will show you how to fold your clothes. We will teach you how and when to eat. You will learn how to set up a bivac, everything you need to survive. Do not assume you know anything until we have taught you it. If you successfully complete a month on the farm, you will qualify for the Kepi Blanc March. If you complete this, you receive your Kepi and continue three months of 
training in the air in the 4th Regiment. The dreaded Cape Blanc march was law in the legion and sent shivers down the spine of any aspiring recruit or veteran. It was as mysterious and gossiped about as sex to pubescent boys. It would make or break the section, but it was the only thing standing between scumbags like us and that funny little white cap. He looked at us and spoke off the script. Other military units brag about the difficulty of their hell week. This is your hell month. If you finish instruction, you will apply for your regiment of choice. The five best recruits may choose their placements. The rest of you, tough shit. Before summer, your ass will be in a flight to somewhere in the world. Enjoy France for now. You may not see it for five years. He mechanically placed his spectacles back into his pocket and marched out the room. I am really and truly in the military now, I thought, as fear and adrenaline coursed through my veins. The next morning, our troop transport rolled through kilometres of dry bush, interpersed with patches of old snow before turning onto a small dirt path leading to a rusty gate. We were disembarked and marched two more kilometres up a steep embankment to what would be our home for the following month, to the famed Belay la Ferme, the notorious legion shack for beating street rebel into fighting men. Behind a two-storey stone building was a barn, two large front doors opened to a terrace, Surrounding it was a deceptively perfect lawn. There was no question as to who would manicure every inch of it. All we're missing are the cows, I joked to Marcos, who was fumbling with his gear and panting after the track. To the right, there was an overgrown field with soccer goals on it, which was unforeseen for an elite military training facility. Yet by now, the Legion had conditioned me to expect the unexpected. Behind the main building ran a narrow staircase to the second floor. We were soon herded up those stairs like lambs to the slaughter by shouting corporals. Depeche-toi, curva! was the standard command. It seemed that one could get by in the legion with knowing a dozen curse words, many of them Slavic. Truerly, in the sandra disukon! Scrambling about, I had no idea what was commanded, except that I had ten seconds in which to do it. In our sleeping quarters, I dumped my bags onto one of the top bunks. The steel frame rattled as they landed on the crusty mattress. You'll sleep like a baby, Marcos quipped as he took the bottom bunk. Just don't piss the bed. After everyone staked the territory, we were ordered back down the stairs in single file and gathered outside on the main lawn before the barn. We stood in perfect two rows, bowed up, feet together, arms at our sides, looking straight ahead at Corporal Border in front of us. You learn nothing while you're in a barn and look like a bag of cellulite, 50 push-ups, he barked. We all dropped to the floor. Not here, ladies. Around the back. He continued, pointing to a square patch of dirty snow behind the barn. We ran over and started again. Un, deux, trois, he counted loudly. Every time someone didn't drop low enough, he commenced from the beginning. Just to mix things up, he repeatedly ordered us to hover in mid-position. Emilio! Corporal Borden's training philosophy was basic. Why use a carrot when the stick works so exceptionally well? We would become accustomed to performing push-ups in the snow. Never mind our feet or palms when in danger of getting frostbite. You only need to know one thing to leave Belay la Femme as a legionnaire, he began as we approached 50. He slowly walked back and forth before us, deliberately creating drama to assent his Al Capone speech. Loyalty and obedience are virtues. A legionnaire is a fighting man, not a thinking man. As long as you put in an honest effort, the farm will be easy. After all, I am a fair and good-natured person. 
We cabral! We all mumbled in unison as we shifted our weight. It wasn't our muscles that were screaming for relief, but our damned heads. My mind drifted blissfully to my days at university when I was the hauling chief instructing the New Year's to do ten push-ups in their quad. How the wheels turn. Son, bitch! I let slip. Kiss-kissa! Corporal Borden queried, disgusted that someone had muttered a word. Silence. His footsteps quickly approached me. I felt Borden's eyes penetrate the back of my skull. His feet stopped squarely by my side. His boots immaculately polished with fresh smell radiant from them. Thump! My lungs collapsed with the blow of hard rubber and boot leather against my solar plexus, leaving me gasping for air. Like a fish out of water, I flailed on the snow trying to fill my chest before I suffocated. As my face turned purple, Corporal Borden bent down and gripped my collar. I momentarily thought it was an executing act of mercy. But instead, he comforted me with an iron fist to the gut. This may have been intentional, since it opened my lungs and kept me from swelling my pants. Listen carefully, Darkley, you white South African piece of shit, he said in perfect Queen's English. In Argentina and France, you Anglophones think you are better than us. I have a Scottish grandfather, but I am fucking proud to wear my brown skin. I'm Latin and Catholic. This is your last warning. You're on my shit list. We go, bro! I managed to get out through my gasping and coughing. But you see, I'm not really English. The Dutch were in South African before. Shut the fuck up, gringo de mer! He screamed and followed with another blow. Attention all passengers! After an unplanned stop in France, we have just crossed into crazy town. We knocked out 300 more push-ups before being ordered to stand at attention again. And do them right next time! We were dismissed to wash up for dinner. We were starving and salivated at the thought of getting something in our stomachs. As we stood around the tables, empty mesh tray in hand, Corporal Borden then confirmed what was on the menu. Enjoy a cup of coffee, you bastards. Do exactly as ordered and you might get some milk and sugar next time. Bon appétit. Bon appétit, Corporal, was the standard response. Borden then left to dine in the adjacent room with a cadre on spaghetti carbonara, specifically prepared by Engager volunteer who formerly was a chef. Where are the damn toilets? I whispered to Marcus. How about to burst? You didn't smell them while you were doing push-ups? Check out that rusty shack over there. I walked back over the dirty snow to the outhouse behind the barn and opened the creaking door. On the ground was a white ceramic slab sloped down into a brown hole in the centre. Covered in muddy footprints were two rough patches on the slab. I situated myself on them and made sure I was aiming properly. As I heard the corporal shouting, I pushed as hard as I could and ended up nearly slipping on my excrement in my rush to join the others. There was never a moment to breathe. We were completely self-sufficient, from preparing our own meagre meals, washing our uniforms, shoving snow and patching leaky roofs. Everything done in PASHAMNASTIK! Double time! The lesion was deliberately stressing us, forcing us to think quick on our feet, to manage chaos and to perform under tremendous stress. Practice as you play. Before any task, we were called to stand to attention in front of the barn. More often than not, Corporal Borden found Engager volunteer with a whisker out of place, and we were punished with punches or even more push-ups. Right or wrong, there was a particular lesion way of doing everything, and any deviation or improvement was met with a swift penalty. Like a failed state, the lesion was structured in a way that those with power stayed in power by abusing that power. Early on, it was easy to write of any abuse as being simply part of training. Coupling that with our ignorance of French 
made for a toxic witch's brew of resentment, but it did motivate even the dumber recruits to learn fast. French lessons occurred daily, right to the time when we were most fatigued. The corporals were keenly aware that there would be plenty nodding off, fresh specimens for sadistic gratifications. I was soon the unfortunate to become the knight's whipping boy. We'd already been jerked around all afternoon with running hills, push-ups and other wild goose chases. My eyelids weren't just heavy, but I developed a splitting headache. Corporal Borden's words slowly melted an opium-induced gibberish. Jump in for me, I heard Julie say as I found myself standing on an iceberg. Um, okay, but why am I in the Arctic? I jumped and then suddenly snapped out of my trance as Borden dumped a bucket of ice water over my head. I let out a gasp as my heart skipped a beat and my lungs contracted. Everybody around me tried to keep their straight face, for laughing would result in the same punishment for them. Now clean up your mess! As imagined, what was meant to be a French lesson descended into both a circus and a good reason to scrub every inch of the farmhouse. With enough push-ups and punches, even a monkey could learn a foreign language. But I was surprised to discover that I had a knack for languages, as knowing both Afrikaans and English gave me an advantage. By the end of the first month, I was virtually fluent in Legion French, which was understood by street thugs and immigrants, but indecipherable to local first graders. Our parlance had always been influenced by the times and campaigns of the Legion. After two world wars, Germans had a disproportionate influence on the Legion. With the fall of the Soviet Empire, the Legion was largely Slavic army. While we still used words like Achtung, German warning, the more commonly heard word was now Kurwa, Polish for bitch. Like salt and pepper, it was used to spice every other sentence and usually added at the end. The farm was a place far from the public's eye, where corporals could use any method to transform into a synchronised marching and fighting machine. As the legion washed away our sins, in the return we had abandoned our bad habits. Our cadres' careers and reputations were at stake, and they had to present a perfectly squared away product once we returned to Castle Nori. The process was the ancient technique of breaking a man down and then building him up. The problem was that the building back up stage was skipped over. Every light at the end of the tunnel turned out to be an oncoming train. I stubbornly clung to the idea that if I was a good soldier, the corporals would reward my effort. The legion followed the Japanese corporate maxim, the nail that sticks out will be hammered. High performers were punished or were simply given a heavier load. I strategically hid in the herd, seeking safety in numbers. I saved my best performance for when it counted. When it was measured, I kicked ass. The greatest challenge was not always the corporals or the brutality of military life, but living with a dozen different nationalities pressed into one section. Cultural animosities that never existed before suddenly exploded. The diversity is our strength mantra thrown around in politics and popular society was proven to be utter nonsense. Indeed, in Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote about how growing up he knew very little about Jews and had in fact never met one. What kept nationalities in the Legion from killing each other wasn't the cultural tolerance, but a force-fed totalitarian Legion culture. Spartan techniques were used to enforce cohesion at the risk of eating our own youth. If an engagé volunteer made a mistake, the section paid for his sins. While peer discipline was effective if used sparingly, in the Legion it created a lynch mob frenzy over the slightest infraction. One blow-up occurred while we were being punished after Daniel spoke out of turn. He was ordered to watch the section perform burpees. As they approached 30, Harak muttered something about America deserving the attack on 9-11. For a good reason, the Legion forbade any political discussion among the ranks. 
but some were bound to learn why the hard way. Daniels was a seasoned brawler after earning his stripes in the nastiest roadhouses in North Carolina. Before any of us knew what was happening, we heard the distinctive thud of bone smashing into bone, sounding like a 2 by 4 hitting a tree. Daniels had landed a high Muay Thai kick to Barak's head, which immediately dropped him like a sack of potatoes. Corporal Borden rushed in and broke up the commotion. Harak was revived and found a new urge to go another round with the Yankee. As such, Borden made it easier for the combatants to finish what they had started by following a classic Legion tradition by ordering them to dig a trench in the rocky ground where they could brawl to their heart's content, with only one man making it out. The mob of Ingenjay volunteers wanted to see a good cockfight. The creepy Central Asian was stretching his limbs as if preparing to then take on the winner. But by the time the pit was finally dug, Harak and Daniels were best comrades. In the back of my mind, I managed to give the bastard Corporal Borden a shred of credit. He may have predicted the peaceful resolution from the start, and this was his way of engineering closure and allowing the fighter to save face. Unresolved disputes tended to fester and die a slow death. Violence was a tool, and then the Legion was a master craftsman. Corporal Borden winked at me. The Legion was always known as a light and extremely nimble unit, even in the recent conflicts. The Legion refused to equip their men with body armor because they considered it too heavy and bulky. The Legion perfected the art of improvising and making do with what was available. As such, the lightweight 5.56mm FAMAS fit the Legion's unique mission. It was nicknamed La Clairon because of its stumpy bulb-pup shape. It's configured with the ammunition feed behind the trigger. The receiver housing is made of steel alloy and the rifle furniture of fiberglass. A relatively long barrel for an assault rifle makes it extremely accurate. It's designed to withstand water, mud, sand and extreme temperatures. Its trigger guard can be pulled away for firing with gloves in arctic conditions. It can fire single or three round bursts, spitting 1,100 rounds per minute in fully automatic mode. A flip-up feature allows it to launch grenades from its barrel. But for all its worthy features, it had a reputation for jamming. Cleaning every small and highly engineered part was a nightmare and took several hours. We then had to memorize the names of the 30 intricate parts in French. Our on-site armory was guarded by a corporal 24 hours per day. Yet even with such strict protocols, there were cases of engagé volunteers who managed to desert with their famas, the most serious sin in the Legion. Authorities were reportedly authorized to shoot them on sight. Our morning runs through the pristine countryside were getting progressively more exhausting. Even the most unfit engagé volunteers were essentially competing in a 10k race every day of the week. Yet the tracks were only a means of conditioning us for the more important objective, the long march. True to form, the Legion inducted us into this beastly tradition early on. Each march was gradually longer and more grueling. They were meant to prepare us for our final judgement, but our bodies barely had time to recover before the next march was announced. After an hour of marching, heads dropped and backs bent low to spread the heavy load as the straps cut into our shoulders. My arms were stabbed by pins and needles from the lack of blood circulation. Our legs and backs were strained to breaking point and even a spoken word would felt like a waste of energy. A slight touch was an extra burden. One followed behind the bloke in front, every man for himself. If anyone took a step to the right or the left out of marching train, a slew of slava curses would be hurled at him. Demonite boss were the sweetest words ever barked. 
My section passed out by the wayside, helpless. I pulled off my rucksack and threw it on the ground with a great relief, joyful at getting rid of the unbearable load for a few moments. Never during my life had a time of rest seemed so luscious and revitalizing as when I lay stretched out in the French snow. To my surprise, the other men kept their rucksacks on to get in a few more seconds of rest and save the effort of lugging back on. During the repose, blood collected in our limbs, which made the standing up and walking again excruciating. Our worn-out legs protested at the previous and upcoming abuse. We looked like a crowd of senior citizens slowly wandering down the road. The devil marches with us, was a common legion maxim. General Oscar de Negria, the legendary 19th century commander, was known for the famous quote, Legionnaire, you become soldier in order to die, and I am taking you to the place where you can die. He was beloved by the legion and considered any wounded man a hero. But when he saw an exhausted legionnaire stumble out of rank and collapse during an awful march in Madagascar, he showed no mercy. He muttered the three words that have defined the legion, march or die. During the conquest of North Africa, tracks which no European commander would attempt were commonplace. One covered 600 kilometers in 16 days, with men fed on nothing but rice. In the Sahara, a legionnaire who fainted on the march was tied to the baggage cart. A pole was pushed through the sides of the wagon at the height of the man's arms, and the legionnaire was roped to it by his shoulders. The pole kept him in a standing position. The cart rolled on. He either had to march or was dragged along. Legionnaires were horrified seeing this torture, but afterwards understood why it was necessary. The fighting value of a legion depended on its marching ability. If a legionnaire were to become separated from the company in the desert, he was a dead man walking. Hostile Arab women, who were far crueler than the men, soon surrounded the helpless man, who suffered a horrifying death after being horribly mutilated. While the legion was proud of its marching tradition, it came at great human expense. We modern legionnaires, tracking across France, had it relatively easy. After marching through the entire afternoon, we usually set up a bivouac late at night. Coming from warm South Africa, it wasn't long before the novelty of snow wore off. The Brazilians and Vietnamese felt the same way, though the Russians were used to it. We slept in the snow that went up to our shoulders, if we managed to get any rest at all. Depending upon the time and altitude, temperatures flitted between above and below freezing, which meant that we were not only frosty but wet, adding insult to injury. We cursed and shivered, but the cold wasn't about to go away, so most of us put up with it, for now. Though we thought the day would never come, it was now time to conquer the Kepi Blanc march. On the eve prior, we were allowed to pack our own gear. Marcos and I carefully selected our essentials. I crammed all my food into the bottom of my rucksack. Two tins of duck liver pâté, two packs of crackers, three sachets of oats and a powdered milk. I left the tin mutton and dehydrated vegetables behind and opted for one of the few pleasures on the farm. The mini cheeses. Why are you leaving your food behind? Marcus asked. I'm going light. By the second day, even a tin of sardines will feel as heavy as a brick. I inspected my cheap cotton sleeping bag, and it was so worn that it looked more like a bedsheet. How cold do you think it'll be? Marcus asked, trying to stuff a polar undershirt into an overpacked rucksack hoping not to hear my expected response. Mate, we'll be walking in the Pyrenees, and it's dead winter. Shit, I can't take the cold anymore, he said in a trembling voice. I sensed that it was more serious than the garden variety bitching. Get yourself together, we can do this. 
If you don't grab my balls, we can double up in my bivac. Early the next morning, dressed in winter combats, we were dropped off at the foothills of the Pyrenees with our section leaders. With thumbs slung around our shoulders and our rucksack secured, we followed the lieutenant through the knolls towards the gentle-looking but sinister white slopes ahead. We didn't follow a particular path, but simply headed west to the Spanish frontier. Like sirens, the mountains rose up towards the bright blue skies, irresistibly pulling me towards them. The foothills were broad and grassy with an occasional rock protruding from the earth. We walked along a stream for most of the morning, hopping from one stone to another. Most of the recruits were still in a jovial mood, with energy to spare. Even at this age, ignorance was bliss. However, the terrain became steeper and rockier the higher we climbed. Luckily the sky was clear, and the midday sun warmed us up nicely, but the weight of our full kit soon became unbearable as we continued the steep climb in one go. The chatter and laughter petted out, and we were replaced with heavy breathing. Two hours in, we were now gasping. The air was thinning, and the men began falling behind. As punishment for not motivating the laggards, we were deprived of the upcoming arrest. My first blister just popped. I can't make it. Marcus whimpered as he held on my rucksack to avoid stumbling back down the steep incline. The devil isn't marching with you. I am. I assured him, though I had no energy to spare beyond mere words. For a split second, I wished Marcos, my best comrade, would simply die. Pain and fatigue were fucking with my mind. By mid-afternoon, after we had walked uphill for eight hours, a normal workday for civilians, we were finally permitted a brief pause. I gulped down my water and took off my boots to investigate the throbbing that had begun on the back of my heel three hours earlier. My feet were now raw and bleeding, but before I could even consider disinfecting my wounds, we were ordered to get moving again. I put my sticky sock back on, hoping that the pain from my pack and my lead weight fumus would mask the pain on my feet. Hang in there, said Corporal Basil as he walked next to me. After instruction, we'll have a Cronenberg and watch the up-and-coming Tri-Nation Cup. By the way... Keep an eye on your comrade Marcos. We arrived at a particularly complicated section that required the use of all fours to haul ourselves over the rock face. It created a bottleneck in the group and gave me a short moment to catch my breath and look around. The streams we had left behind early in the day were now just a thin sliver of water, glistening in the setting sun. We were surrounded by a vast, spectacular expanse of mountains that extended as far as the eye could see. These same peaks kept the Islamic hordes out of the Christian Europe, Daniels muttered to me, 1,200 years later, and we're still fighting them. I thought that was the Battle of Tours, I replied. Oh, so now you're some kind of PhD historian. We finally reached a plateau of sorts, and the terrain was approximately flat. I assumed we were on easy street until I felt a solitary snowflake hit my face. Within half an hour, the ground was covered in snow. The mesa was cradled in either side by two steep peaks that loomed over us and blocked most of the sun, which now hovered low on the horizon. We were given one minute to get our headlamps on and then kept walking, barely able to see the man in front of us. I was horrified that I might accidentally twist an ankle, walk off a ledge or trigger a landslide. It was another three hours of marching before the corporals finally allowed us to step, set up our bivac on a snowy crag high in the Pyrenees. I was exhausted, and my feet were staked tartar. My muscles cramped and my fingers and nose were completely frozen. Now the dropping temperatures would be freezing our sweat. 
There was only a short period where we were not humid and overheating, and not shivering from the bitten cold. Those minutes passed, and my clothes became icy and encrusted. But I loved it. Pain reminded me that I was alive. Though freezing and exhausted, before we slept a wink, we had to master the latest winter field craft technique. With frozen sausages that used to be our fingers, Marcus and I somehow began erecting our shared bivouac. We found two trees three meters apart, secured a cord between them and draped my ground sheet over it to form a basic A-frame shelter. We piled some snow and sand on the corners to pin them down like an ordering tent. We then placed Marcus's sheet on the ground inside, hoping it would defend us from the cold, or at least any dampness from below. We were the first to finish, and Corporal Borden gave us the evening off from harassment. He sensed that now wasn't the best time to fuck the men around. I caught my breath, and under the full moon marveled at my minor feat of mountaineering. Mallory would have been proud. But then, the unthinkable happened. A loaded truck pulled into our encampment without any effort or circumstance. I never imagined there would even be a footpath for miles, much less a road. My sense of accomplishment dropped like a stone. Steam arose from the back of the vehicle. The entire section shivering in their cotton sleeping bag got to see the officers and the NCOs enjoy a nice, hot-cooked meal, replete with coffee and hot chocolate. But I was far too exhausted to care. Sub-zero temperatures and all, I slept like a baby on the snowy ground. The next morning we woke up in the low cloud, which swallowed up the previous day's majestic views. The ground was covered in a blanket of thick snow. We had five minutes to pack our bivouac and scoff down some liver pate before continuing our march high up into the mountains. The water in my water canteen had frozen solid. It was a stupid rookie mistake to have left it away from my body for the stretch of the time. In combat conditions, it could have cost me my life. Sure enough, Corporal Borden went by every man in formation and jostled his canteen to see if another knucklehead had committed the same infraction. I was the unlucky bastard with a flat lip that morning. I estimated that it would be several grueling hours before I could drink a mouthful of water. A fierce gust blew wet air from all angles, which penetrated even the tightest seams. My boots, socks and uniform were drenched within an hour. Marching in the fog was more dangerous than tracking in pitch darkness since lamps could illuminate our path. For six hours we walked with no break, though it was probably to simply keep us from freezing to death. Nature was playing games on me and giving me every reason to give up and succumb to the elements. Had my comrades not been motivating me, more like pushing, cursing and threatening me, I may have given up. By lunchtime the clouds finally lifted and the slowly exposed stunning nameless peaks that were close enough to touch. Breakfast, Corporal Borden barked, which prompted a unified sigh of relief as everyone could get a moment's rest and a few sugar calories. My mouth was dry, but I still managed to pour a sachet of milk powder down my throat, which congelated like glue. Luckily there was now a gulp of water in my canteen, which I used to wash down my sustenance. I grimaced with pain as the condition of my feet deteriorated. Jeffany, Jeffany, I heard moan behind me. The unthinkable had happened. Our best man and Alpha Marcos was throwing in the towel. I turned around to see him kicking his rucksack down the hill where we were about to descend. Fuck all of this shit. Fuck the Kepi Blanc, he shouted as he continued to throw his toys out of his crib. This is not going to end well, and this is definitely not the time to pull the shit. I thought to myself and quickly tried to catch up to him before Corporal Borden did. I was too late.
Fine, go fuck yourself down the bottom of the hill with the rest of your shit. Borden responded with a boot to his back. Marcus flew face down the remounts right into a tree, barely managing to keep his teeth. Politicians in Paris won't allow us to execute deserters anymore. You're lucky to be in today's Legion, where every engagé volunteer has rights, and we have to show restraint. We made this shit easy, and this is how you pay us back. If we were not Jerry like the old days, you all disgust me. The section stood petrified in silence. Your break has just been cut short, Borden shouted. Get your asses moving and thank Comrade Marcos for that one. He doesn't need us and wants to get off this mountain on his own. Now repeat after me. Merci, comrade. Little Mushkin and I ran down the hill and helped Marcos up. Dude, not yet. I whispered to him and as I got his kit squared away. At least wait until we get off this damn mountain and then you have a good think. Like a rock star's tour manager, by whatever means, I just needed to get my client through the next show. If I could convince Marcos to stick it out one more afternoon, we could give him extra rest in order to gather the strength to finish the march. I won't make promises, I can't keep, he responded. I don't think for a minute that piece of shit Corporal Gordon won't leave you here to die, I said earnest. I'm only moving for you, Doc Lay, but may God forgive me for what I'll eventually do, he said as his eyes watered up. Deal, I declared immediately. You can't be caught out here with your famas. I'm going to slowly take it from you, okay? Mishkin, without protest, took his rucksack. I had to find a way to distract Marcus until the evening. For now, we had to quickly catch the rest of the section, already a kilometre ahead of us. We continued walking through the snow for another ten hours before stumbling into a small flat clearing where we could set up bivac. Marcus, help me put up our camp. After that we can get some hot food inside us before we go to sentry duty. I snapped to Marcus in hopes that he'd forget all about jumping ship. I made my decision, he mumbled as he got up and walked towards Corporal Borden. Sitting a few metres away, I couldn't make out what was transpiring between the two. But Corporal Borden remained calm, for he was more interested in setting up his own bivac for the night. A minute passed, and Marcus sheepishly returned. And? I asked. I was expecting to have my teeth kicked in, yet he couldn't even look me in the eye. He told me that I was free to pack my shit and start walking home. I wish he'd beaten me. Regardless of who came on top, this would have been settled. He called me a coward. His words hurt me more than a blow. Damn, now the legion's fucking you around, I said as I sat up. French law allows you to leave within six months of joining. They're reneging and make it impossible for you to do so. This place is one big lie. The next morning we woke up early to pack up our bivac. This was the last day of our march and it was crisp and clear. With a heavy rucksack, swollen knees and blistered feet, getting off the blasted mountain was as beastly as getting up it. For 13 hours we descended from rocky upper regions past three tree lines and into the greener foothills. I lost track of how far or how high we had walked, but before I knew it the march ended abruptly. Most didn't even know that we had now earned our kepi. Like much in the Legion, this event was largely anticlimactic. I wanted to keep marching, to endure more pain and feel that I merited the award. The engagé volunteers that shredded feet or lost toenails did not share my sentiment. After surviving that first rite of passage, we spent an entire day sprucing up the farm and ourselves for our formal ceremony. The daily violence was replaced by tedious training in drill and staging. 
We perfected marching information, arms presentation, salutations, and generally just be not being handmade thugs. Wearing new, specially issued and pressed camouflage combats, we were taken to a distant medieval citadel, which was unlikely to be on any tourist guidebook. It may have been known by the Legion and used for special occasions. It was surrounded by high stone walls that enclosed an sizable stately courtyard. Knighthood awaited us. I polished and buffed my boots one last time. In my right hand, inside a clear protective plastic bag, was my kepi blanc, which nobody dared place on their head before the moment we were officially allowed to do so. Though much in the Legion thus far has been ad hoc and half-assed, the frogs did take pomp and ceremony seriously. The Legion takes arrogant pride in being the only force that marches to a slow 88 footsteps per minute, compared to the standard 120 of nearly every other military unit in the world. The we don't hurry for anybody attitudes on full display each year on Bastille Day, July 14th, when the French armed forces parade down Champs-Élysées, Tens of thousands of enthusiastic spectators watch the fascist show of might. The loudest cheers are always for the stately column of legionnaires arrogantly bringing up the rear. The legion was also as good at singing as they were at fighting, a boys' choir composed of tattooed men with husky voices. Singing and parading have always been the artistic expression that bonds men in brotherhood. One could hear the rich tone of bellowing legionnaires approaching miles away. A trumpet heralded our entrance to the courtyard. Twenty-eight chanting Gege volunteers marched in rows, following behind a cadre and lieutenants. Not a single soul flubbed the synchronized perfection. We the damned of the earth, we are the wounded of all wars, we cannot forget. A misfortune, a shame, a woman we adored. We have hot blood in our veins, madness in our head, and a heart of sorrow. When we reached the middle of the courtyard, we halted and simultaneously turned to the left, just before the watchful eye of the 4th Regiment Colonel who stood before the waving tricolour. With one loud final step, we all froze to attention, with one hand behind our backs, the other hand at our sides holding our kepis. Because we were arranged in order of height, I was given the honour of experiencing the spectacle up front and centre. The trumpet sounded again and our captain marched in wearing the same camouflage gear as his men but with epaulets with four gold stripes on his shoulders. He spoke with a crisp loud voice that echoed off the walls of the castle. His words were tinged and spiritual notes. Engagez volunteers, you have fought the good fight, finished the race and have held the traditions of the legion. You have earned the right to stand here today as legionnaires. Still standing to attention, we then revertedly recited every word of the Legion's Code Honour. In attendance were no family members, no girlfriends and no fanfare. We had nobody but ourselves, professionals, brothers by spilled blood, not birth. I didn't want anybody to mourn my death. Thanking us for our heroism was akin to thank strangers for praying their taxes. It's merely what we do. The trumpets blew two notes. And in perfect synchronization, we lifted our kepi blanks with our right hand and placed it squarely on our heads. This movement had taken hours to perfect, but we pulled it off flawlessly. We then saluted the colonel with a flick of our open palm to the forehead and back to our sides with a slap. He formally returned the gesture. 
The trumpet notes then danced around the courtyard and we finally shared some informal bonding. I was now a legionnaire. With the farm and bitter winter behind us, we returned to Castle Nordry, which was slowly being transformed by the arrival of spring. The trees filled out in multiple shades of green and the days grew longer. The second phase of instruction was more centred on practical skills such as musketry, land navigation and tactics. Though France hadn't defended any against any gas since World War I, we trained thoroughly for it. As the days of fighting in trenches had ended, the Legion was now a mobile counter-guerrilla force. Terrorists' events had transformed our training, now with an emphasis on close combat. The runs continued longer and faster, but we were in excellent shape and I actually enjoyed the morning workouts. We were now provided with more calories and gained back some muscle mass. However, the bullshit didn't cease but merely changed in nature. In between lessons, we were left to the entertainment of our corporals getting their sadistic jollies. They delighted in ordering us to paint every square inch of the corridor black with our own boot polish. We stood at attention while the corporals looked for any unpainted spots. Once they were satisfied with our work, we had to somehow remove any trace of black polish on the tiles, grout and all. I preferred swift violence over mindless bullshit. It was quicker, and we could get on with more important things. With the legionnaires used as their personal hand puppets, the corporals competed with each other as to who could come up with the most humiliating tasks. A legionnaire was once turned into a human cuckoo clock for a full 24 hours forced to sit on a locker and shout out time every 15 minutes. Another had to stand at attention, also for 24 hours, in front of his bed. I saw him fall asleep, standing up, only to wake up with his head hit to the bed frame. As he collapsed, Corporal Borden's creativity surpassed even that of the most skilled Spanish inquisitors. Though I was living under my nom de guerre, there was no outstanding security restrictions on me. On Sunday afternoons, we were occasionally given free time. I often spoke off the record with Corporal Basil. We kept our informal friendship under wraps, but like all things, breaking or bending the rules was the rigour in the Legion. Corporal Basil even passed his cell phone to me to call my family, to announce that I was alive and now a formal member of the famed French Foreign Legion. But then one morning I woke up in a cold sweat, feeling uneasy and unable to get back to sleep, even after being starved for the rest. I stepped silently to the balcony and stared out onto the parade ground, looking past the barracks, taking in the deep quiet but feeling that something beyond the legion was wrong. As my section queued for baguettes and coffee hours later, Corporal Basil approached me somberly. You got a text from a friend back home. It sounded urgent. Benno, who'd motivated me to join the legion, was now desperate to speak to me. This didn't bode well. Corporal Basil slipped me his phone and I went to a secluded area. I left my breakfast uneaten. Hey man, tell me something positive. What's going on? I hoped that my cheerful demeanor would bring good news. It wasn't to be. Alex, he started with a tremble in his voice. Something's happened. My heart stopped. Just tell me, dammit. I said as I prepared for every worst eventuality. I heard Benno swallow. Yeah, and he's dead. He was killed in a car accident. He wrapped himself around a pole. Oh God, no, please, not Yanni. It was fast, I don't think he suffered. My existence in the French Legion suddenly felt meaningless. I was now back in Johannesburg. Alex, 
Are you still there? Benno's voice echoed in my head from a distance. I began trembling from rage and grief. What the fuck am I doing in this army, playing cowboys and Indians? I need to get back home, I fretted. Mate, it'll do no good. Yanni's gone. He was proud of you for making it to the Legion. Death never comes at the right time. Don't throw it all away now. Do it for him. I need to be alone, I said and I hung up. I went through the rest of the next few days in a haze, merely going through the motions and trying my hardest to get through, or be thrown out. I put up with the push-ups, punching and hazing, with little more than a comatose look on my face. The entire section knew that something was horribly wrong with me. The nights were the worst. Yanni visited me in my sleep, chasing me on the rugby pitch, trying to buddy up with his big brother. Don't forget about me, he'd say with his broad, playful grin. I'd wake up several times in the night thinking he was standing next to my bed. Was it all a bad dream or was he really gone? I remember the pain of losing my father as a toddler and not knowing why he was no longer at the breakfast table giving us his daily prep talk. Yanni's loss revealed that I had never learned to let go after losing a loved one. I wanted to cry, but Yanni deserved more than my salty tears. Instead, I buried my sadness deep in my gut to germinate and grow into an irrepressible fire. But providence has a way of intervening just when all hope seems lost, for our section was just about to undergo our final tests. I channeled my anger into those tasks that might have bring Yanni back. We were meticulously tested on every aspect of our training, from French to the thumbers. One of the penultimate tests was how fast we could run 8 kilometers in full kit and with our weighted rucksack. The commando run was perhaps the toughest to pass. It was a means of selecting those most suitable for the elite parachute regiment. The previous year, one poor devil suffered a heat stroke during the run and ended up spending a year recovering. When the time came to run, I had to prove myself invincible. I tightened my military belt and lugged up my rucksack, filled the enough gear for a three-day mission onto my back. I grabbed my famas and green beret and headed to the maroon courtyard with my comrades to receive instructions. Unconcerned about the near death of a recruit in the recent past, the sergeants deliberately started us off at high noon. My feet soon became red-hot embers. It was torturous carrying that load, feeling it grate the skin on my back, but the pain was nothing compared to what my soul suffered after losing Yanni. Many gave up or didn't finish in the maximum allotted time. With cramping quadriceps and my spine painfully misaligned, I finished ahead of everybody else. My days ploughing through men or wrestling them to the ground on the rugby pitch paid off. In the weeks that followed, I attained one of the highest scores in marksmanship. For the Cooper Test, a 12-minute dash, I ran better than any burly Guinness-willing rugby player in history, completing a decent 3.1 kilometres. I was ever grateful to my parents for motivating me to push through my studies since I got high marks for my near-fluent French. For our sandbag lift and sprint test, I imagined tossing a defender on the shoulders and rushing to the trial line. I was able to operate that radio with ease and coordinate a section-level counter-attack. To me, leading men into battle was no different than motivating teenagers to break through a defensive line near the goalposts. A man's best effort was always good enough for my father and I never imagined I would out-soldier the Spetsnaz or my Yankee Jarhead comrade. But to my amazement, I finished at the very top of my class. The Legion congratulated me with a low-key celebration, a certificate and a handshake from our captain. 
I'd gotten used to working in the thankless job, but that simple gesture of gratitude from an army that had taken so much for me felt damn good. It pays to win, even though I would have traded all to hug my brother Yanni goodbye before he left this world. Finishing first meant I was summoned to the sergeant chef's office to discuss which regiment I preferred. The entire section queued in the order of placement. I passed the Hurak, who turned out to be a good bloke, and slapped him on the back. I fist-pumped Daniels, who finished in top five. I then approached Marcos, the born natural, and gave him a warm hug. He was a better man than me in so many ways and was so close to abandoning his dreams. You saved me back there, he said. Thanks. I knocked on the chef's door and crisply presented myself. You finished well, he started as he opened my file. It is rare to see an anglophone with such determination. As you know, you have the privilege of choosing where you would like to be posted. Your other comrades will be shipped off to where the Legion needs them. I want to go to Africa, sir, the Legion's original home. Djibouti was the home of the 13th Demi-Brigade de la Légion étrangère, created in 1940 as part of a constituted unit of the Free French Forces in World War II. It consisted of one infantry unit, one engineering unit, and one armed squadron. The 13th DBLE was involved in most French campaigns since then. Its strategic location in the Horn of Africa gave France a degree of control over the Red Sea and Zeus Canal. As in many overseas units, legionnaires there could earn a small fortune. The sergeant chef's eyes narrowed and he responded tersely. You cannot go to Djibouti. Sir, I was under the assumption, I said quickly, but he interrupted me in my mid-sentence. Because you're a flight risk, you're from Africa. I was tempted to ask him if he'd ever looked at a map to see that there were several war-ravaged countries between the Horn of Africa and my home. I would have been easier for me to get Johannesburg from Antarctica than Djibouti. But I didn't dare protest. The Legion simply had its way of doing things. Not that we don't trust you, we appreciate you Anglophones, but you do have a history of not sticking it out. Honestly, I recently thought about quitting, but now I have even more reason to honour my word. I would like to join the Parachute Regiment. The Duzium Rep had a reputation of being the cream of the crop. Based on the island of Corsica, desertion was believed to be impossible, which also gave the corporals free reign over the new legionnaires. It was part of the forced action rapide, which meant legionnaires were on permanent standby to intervene anywhere in the world within 24 hours. The Duzium Rep was broken up into four companies, each with its own specialisation in night, mountain, urban and aquatic warfare. Even within this elite regiment was the best of the best unit, the GCP Pathfinders, open only to corporals and above. I'm afraid you cannot join the parachutist either, he fretted. I know your dossier and your past as a rugby player. I even know the name of the doctor who operated on your bad knee. If we drop you behind enemy lines and you happen to re-injure yourself, we don't have the money or the resources to rescue you. Now what is your third choice? Well, I didn't join the Legion to enjoy the beauty of the southern France. Send me to the Amazon. At that stage, I really didn't care. Good choice. I now had a reason to smile. Honoured for being in the 3rd Infantry Regiment in French Guiana, straight out of the instruction, most Legionnaires had to re-enlist for that privilege. This dark horse cohort was steeped in rumour and mystery, notably with regard to the gruelling advanced jungle warfare course. 
I expected Guyan to fill the gap left by my recent disillusionment during instruction. I joined the Legion to expose my body and spirit to the most extreme conditions. The Amazon would finally fulfill that expectation. Still in Castel, before I was slotted to ship out to the northern eastern coastline of South America, the entire Legion celebrated the most sacred holiday, Cameroon Day. In 1860s, France was attempting to extend her empire into Mexico and sent in the Legion. Many deserters at the time ended up fighting the American Civil War. Towards the end of April 1863, French troops stationed in Puebla, Mexico, were running low on supplies. The Legion was selected to guard a special relief convoy. Only 62 Legionnaires, led by one-handed Captain John Danjou, were available to participate in the mission. There were doubts that such a small company would be able to police the party, but Captain Danjou knew that his Legionnaires would fight to the death to accomplish the task. He didn't know how true this would be. Along the way, near the town of Cameroon, they were surrounded and attacked by 2,000 Mexicans, and a day-long battle ensued. Five times, the superior Mexican forces called upon Captain Danjou to surrender, and all five times the answer was, Merd! Echoing the spirit in 1944 when American commander Anthony McAuliffe was made the same offer by the Germans. His response was, Nuts! The captain was shot dead during the battle, and only three legionnaires survived. While the fighting raged, the convoy slipped past, saving the troops in Puebla. After fighting with such extraordinary bravery, the lives of the survivors were spared by the Mexicans. Captain Danjou's wooden hand was later recovered and sent back to France as a relic of the Legion's heroism and sacrifice. Every year, thousands of veterans in various cities celebrate. The main gala occurred in Aban, but each regiment and outpost participated in their own way. In the Legion, even those who die in a lost battle merit Valhalla. I didn't understand the spiritual ramifications of this death cult at that time. I just knew that it was the first occasion in months that we were allowed alcohol. Cameroon Day was one of the few times that barriers of rank were broken, with sergeants, corporals and legionnaires mingling with each other freely, yet we were still young legionnaires in training. One thing that legionnaires were good at was turning any celebration into a massive party. Marcos was showing off his smooth caparoya moves, Daniels was already drunk off of a fifth of the most excellent Kentucky bourbon which cost him several weeks of pay. Trying to prove ourselves amongst a multitude of nationalities, with alcohol thrown into the mix, there was bound to be trouble. Just after I passed out in bed from drink and exhaustion, I was woken by a commotion outside in the square. I put on my military trousers and a t-shirt, splashed water on my face and went outside to see what was going on. A dark cloud permeated what had been joyous atmosphere. I heard loud voices and sirens. The gendarmes and the civilian police were present beyond the regiment gates. Near the company entrance was rivulets of blood, presumably from a drunken patch-up. The authorities were questioning men who were still in the underpants and those who could barely stand. Other legionnaires looked out from their balconies with stunned looks on their faces. Yet nobody quite knew what had occurred. And then I spotted Marcos, who was not a heavy drinker, on the far side of the square with Daniels. What the hell? I asked. Something terrible happened last night. Not the typical ass beating, but something really bad? 
You know that creepy Central Asian fuck who has barely spoken more than three words during instruction? Yeah, I stayed clear of him. He's sodomized Mishkin in the toilet with a broomstick. There's blood everywhere. What? We'll lynch that Genghis Khan piece of shit, Daniel said with rage in his eyes. The pussy fled and they can't find him, Marcus continued. He singled out the weakest teenager in the section and had his way with him. Poor kid nearly bled out. Now his insides are torn the fuck up. We'll probably never see either of them again. I wondered who was to blame. After the constant harassment and abuse, now mixed with alcohol, the culprit snapped. Did the legion turn Neanderthals into gentlemen, or vice versa? Or did it simply allow the sick men of the world to channel their perversions? Was it Corporal Borden's incessant hazing, the legion's fanatical discipline, or deeply repressed feelings of inferiority and helplessness that manifested itself in cannibalism? Why was my brother Yanni dead, and this sick rapist still alive? I couldn't answer that question. And who among us was without sin? I struggle to believe that all wrongs were equally repugnant before the Almighty. God may have forgiven him, but I did not. The following day, it was back to sweeping, polishing and scrubbing, as if nothing had happened. Marcus was shipped to the 1st Regiment at Trojejini in Lordin, and Daniels was the first in line to go on a mission to Afghanistan with the Dusian Rep. As long as I can keep killing those Haji motherfuckers, I'm straight. Hoorah!